study this evening begins in the 11th chapter of Romans. Now, I don't necessarily like to be redundant, but there's a blessing in redundancy. Uh, so I'll be redundant in reminding us once again what we're studying. In the book of Romans, the ninth, the 10th, and this, this evening, the 11th chapter, deals with Paul's doctrine. It's his presentation of his doctrine of vindication. He's vindicating God for rejecting the Jews. And we've studied enough in the uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10 to understand why they was rejected. It was because of their blatant rebellion. And so not all of them rejected the, the message of God. Not all of them refused to hear God. It's like today. Well, uh, let's go back to Daniel. In that time when Judah was taken off into Babylon's captivity, God through Jeremiah said, Stand ye in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way. Walk therein. And they said, we will not. That was their attitude. And, But that wasn't all of them. But that was the majority of Israel at that point in history. But yet there was that little remnant called Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm sure there was many others. But these four was picked out for lessons that was imperative for our salvation. But there was probably many more that wasn't mentioned. You know, in, a, in Elijah's day, he thought he was the only one to serve God. <laughs> and God said, quit your pouting and get back about your duty of preaching because I have 7,000 men that hasn't bowed a knee to Baal yet. And so, but there's still just a remnant that's going to be saved. And the Jews don't understand why their totality of their religion is rejected. Well, it served its purpose. It brought us to Christ and that what, what it was intended and designed by God to do. Everything in it, as we see in Sunday morning in Hebrews 10, was a shadow. In Hebrews 9, 10, 1. And in Hebrews 9, verse 24 uh, and 26, it was a figure of better things to come. And so the old system merely spoke of a better system. And when it came, guess what happened to the old system? Well, let Paul tell you in Galatians 3, the law, and that's not just the Ten Commandments. The law in the Bible is used to speak of the 800 and some rules and regulations of worship that was given to them. All of it together, along with the law. The law was a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians, to bring us to Christ. And once it did, Paul said, we have no more need of a schoolmaster. We have no more need of the law. Because we are people who are not under law. We know that. I'm not going to go into it. I won't reach any further into that. or we, It'll stifle our class this evening. But we need to remember where we're studying. And these, chapter 9, 10, and 11... These Jews feel like they've been rejected by God. And they have. If they die without being baptized, there is no hope for them. Just because they're a Jew. And so, Paul, uh, in this uh, 11th chapter, you can mark it down with this statement. Chapter 11 says, in essence, all is not lost. They think the whole thing's over. It's, they have no hope. Paul says, in any case, and he's going to prove it to them. And there's a little small outline there of six points that takes us through the first ten verses of Paul's uh, presentation to them. But let me state again, uh, I may be labeled as somebody that's always reiterating or uh, become redundant in stating things over and over and over again. 
but that's partly how we learn. Uh, I know I'm appreciative of the years past when men have uh, struggled to teach me and others, and they've used redundancy to do it. Is that the proper word I'm using, redundant? But listen to Paul here as he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3 and verse 1, because he talks about this little matter of redundancy. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, uh, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. It's safe. And so he, they knew these things, but he's writing to them things they already knew. And I'm just making sure everybody knows where we're at in Romans. To get a hold of the book is to see the overview of it and what purpose these things were written for and to understand Paul's letter. Okay. Did I turn that thing on? Yeah. I did? No. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't, I don't believe it. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked and just looked. Yeah, it's counting. Now that I brought that up, let me give you a word on that. Can you imagine the influence we might be having on the world through that little instrument there? Now Darren, my middle son, took it upon himself to set up what he calls a cloud in the sky. I don't understand all of that, but it's a worldwide cloud. And what we preach and what we teach uh, he's the one that sees it. It gets in an orderly form in this cloud. And the world has access to it. And he can go in there and see how many hundreds of thousands of people have looked at it or tuned in on that station or whatever it is, that cloud. But isn't that something? You know, we meet down here and you can count a few heads and count most of the time on a couple of hands and you got the number. But that's not all. Uh, our outreach is profound when you think of it in that term and we know the power of God's word and so we know that God's word is being dispensed out there maybe in an awkward way through me and others but still in all it's being put out there for men to share in and listen to of course the choice is theirs what they want to do about it but isn't that something and so that's one thing that will drive you if you're teaching or preaching is knowing that you're, what you say about Christ, about the gospel, goes out to the, is, is accessible by the whole world. And so, all is not lost. The remnant of Israel, at the time Paul wrote, God had a remnant as he did in the days of Elijah. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, here he presents the remnant of Israel. Here's God's teaching concerning the remnant. Uh, there's a fellow who preaches a sermon years ago entitled, God is in the remnant business, and he is. We've studied the Old Testament long enough to realize that. Uh, it was always a remnant that was saved because only a remnant would listen to God. Only a remnant would be obedient to God. There are a lot of people that want to belong to an organization but aren't willing to put anything into it. And that's generally the case in religion. Uh, so he preached this sermon that his entitled God is in the remnant business. And that's exactly correct. He is. You ever go to the remnant shop with your wife and She's looking for a piece of cloth, and the guy or the woman will find several uh, bowls of, of cloth, but they're not long enough because they're a remnant, so he, she has to dig a little deeper. So a remnant is just a little piece, uh, a little bit that's been left over after the rest has been used. And so God is in the remnant business. He's not trying to save the mass. He knows he can't but he's trying to save those who will listen and believe. 
He preaches to the mass to save the remnant. Right out of the masses, he gathers the remnant. The gospel has went out in Benton City for years, ever since there was a Benton City, I suppose, and Richland, Kennewick, and Pasco. The gospel has went out to this world as it began 2,000 years ago. Well, even before then, because you remember Paul saying in Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham? And somebody said, no, the gospel wasn't until Christ. Well, that's when it was fulfilled, but the good news, the gospel about a Messiah was preached to Abraham when God told him in Genesis 12, 3, In thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And so men have heard the gospel, and there's many of them that toy around with it, and maybe they go to church and turn out to be a legalist, which doesn't focus on the cross of Christ for salvation, focuses on their good deeds and their ability to save themselves. And they're not focused on the cross. So that was a problem with Israel. There was the large Israel, the whole totality of it, and yet in that uh, in that uh, organization was a remnant that was saved. And they were saved by, we've already studied that, by faith. And that's the way God designed it. And that's, that's the reality and the fact today. The ones that's going to be saved will be saved by faith. Not because they attended what we call church <laughs> and uh, ate the cracker and drank the juice. They're going to be saved by their faith. And faith is a driving force. God never intended for it to be, to be just a thing that would relax us and set us down in a dormancy. You can't you can't know and understand and appreciate the gospel without it driving you. That's why Paul called the gospel God's dynamite. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ the power, because it is the power of God. Power, that word is dunamos in the Greek, which means dynamite. All right, in verse 1, uh, there's a solemn question that is asked. And that's in the outline there to help you understand it, uh, see clearly what this chapter is talking about. In verse 1, Paul says, I say then, did God cast off his people? Now that's a very solemn question. Uh, of course, Israel has been promised all of the great blessings of the Old Testament. And now, all of a sudden, has God rejected them? Has God cast them off? And let's remember the two things that have been said so far about Israel's rejection in our study. No. Uh, number one, God has never entered into any obligation with Israel that would deny him the, uh, the liability of rejecting anyone who wouldn't accept it. And they hadn't accepted it. They stood in rebellion against it. Like I said about in Jeremiah's day, God pleaded with them on that one instance. Many instances, but that's just one of them. Stand ye in the way and see, and ask for the old paths. Wherein is a good way, and walk therein. And their attitude was, we will not. They was in blatant rebellion, yet they worship God. There is a lot of people that worship God but not according to faith. Not according to the pattern that's set out. Paul made it clear in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 when he talked about the oneness of religion. There's one faith, one doctrine. And men like to tamper with them things like they had authority to do that. Uh, in some churches, it's went so far as their blindness toward the authority of God's Word uh, that uh, they have women speaking and preaching and teaching. And that's contrary to God's Word. Uh, and here's how they justify it. Somebody says, you don't have a right to do that. You elders do not, or should be ashamed. You don't have a right to set women up in places that God didn't intend for them to ever be. And they say, uh, well, yeah, uh, a woman shouldn't speak, but we gave them uh, 
the authority to speak. Well, who do you think you are to override God's authority and inject yours as though you were somebody? You don't have a right to set aside God's word just because you think it's okay for women to speak. But that's what happens. That's blatant rebellion. Yet those people worship God. You go down the street here to people that's never been born into God's family. They swear up and down they worship God. You see them in services most of the time. You see them driving back and forth. Clothes like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they're really showing God there. Anyway. So, uh, here Paul's dealing with the large circle, small circle concept. Israel, salvation is for all Israel. And all Israel will be saved. But all Israel is that remnant that believe. It's not the whole bunch of them. And so, uh, and so, Two things have been said. God has never entered into any obligation with Israel that would deny him the uh, liberty of rejecting anybody who wouldn't accept it. That's chapter 9. The second thing that we learned in that is that the reason for Israel's rejection was their disobedience and their gainsaying attitude. Chapter 10. And you know in the Gospels and I think it's Matthew 17, 1 through 5, or Matthew 7, I can't remember now, but Jesus approached the Jews and he said, In vain do they worship me. You know what vain means? It'll, it'll gain them not. No, it's for no good at all. He said, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And you remember all through his three year ministry, he repeatedly was confronted with the condemnation of the Jews according to their understanding of the law. And he had to stop and explain to them that they missed it. They didn't understand the law. They condemned him for eating with unwashed hands, his apostles. They condemned him for picking corn on the Sabbath day. And uh, he healed a man on one occasion on the Sabbath. And boy, they really got upset. Oh, according to the law, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But they failed to recognize the Sabbath gave them right to pull an ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day. And does God think more of oxen than he does men? And so, see, they had a problem of, of uh, being turned away from the truth on the fables. And that's where Paul, that's why Paul warned Timothy before his head was taken off at the chopper block. He wrote his last letter in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Very sobering thought. He said, I'm charging you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead. You preach the word, you be instant in season and out of season. That means when they like it and when they don't like it. You're not in a popularity contest. And he told them why. He said, for the time will come when men will not receive uh, truth. Endure huh? sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, yeah. Thanks, son. Men will not receive sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, that we turned away from the truth unto fables. And that's what we see in the denominational world. Because Paul said there's only one church, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one doctrine it teaches. There's one faith it believes. There's one hope of its calling. There's one spirit that led it to all of this. And there's one Lord and one God. And what does the world say? Why? They throw that out the window and it goes according to the doctrines and the commandments of men. The early church began on its birthday in Acts 2. And in verse 42, 3,000 Jews that obeyed the gospel that day, it says about them, they continued unbrokenly or steadfastly. That's the King James word. They continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' teaching. Why did they do that? Because these men were chosen by God. These men were inspired by God miraculously. These men were charged to go into all the world and, and preach the gospel to every creature, and they did. And so the early church 
continued unbrokenly in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. You want a synopsis of what the church is required to do? Continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, uh, breaking of bread, and prayer. Again, Acts 2.42. All right, so uh, don't forget those two things that we mentioned a minute ago because they are going to help us here. The question is, did God cast off his people? Now, that's a solemn question. And it's even answered there because Paul said, God forbid. Uh, in other words, may it never be so that God would cast off his people. That's not the nature of God. That's not the nature of love. And God is love. 1 John 3, verse 7. Uh, so he's saying to them, perish the very idea of such a thing that God would cast off his people. He said that uh, that uh, thought should not even be asked. It shows ignorance on the part of anybody that would ask a question like that. Has God cast off his people? <laughs> no, I don't think so. God is faithful, isn't he? What teaches you the faithfulness of God? What teaches you the continuity of God? The continuance in his drive for the love of man? Look at gravity. Has it ever changed? Do you go to bed at night chewing your fingernails and wondering how if there's going to be gravity in the morning to hold you down to the earth that you're not sucked out in the black hole? I mean, look at, look at how we depend on God and we don't even question his uh, veracity when it comes to his stability and his determination. He made a world down here for you and I uh, to be exercised thereby. And it is set up according to laws of physics. That's what we call them. Laws of physics. Do they change? No, we govern everything and develop things by the laws of physics. Nobody questions that. And so Paul says that thought should not even be asked as God rejected his people. Uh, the very thought that God has rejected his people is an impossible uh, and impassable thought to entertain. Imagine a father rejecting his son. No, God has not rejected his people. Now the answer is illustrated in verse 1b, the first part of, or the second part of uh, chapter, uh, verse 1. He says, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. See, God hasn't rejected all these people. I'm, I'm one he didn't reject. And let's look at Paul for a minute. Who was Saul of Tarsus? And so it's illustrated by Paul's own case. Uh, is he unquestionably a Jew? Is he without doubt one of the uh, paragons of being a Jew? Yeah. Benjamin's tribe was one of the two honored tribes of the South. He's not only, uh, not even of one of those northern ten tri tribes who he discusses earlier who were rejected by the providence of God in the Old Testament. He's of the faithful ones down there in the South. There's no doubt then uh, their, their fellow is a Jew of Jews. And so Paul is a Jew of Jews. I mean, they don't get any better than Paul when it comes to being a Jew. He was a Jew. And he's using himself as an illustration. God hadn't rejected me. As he says in another place, uh, he's even a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now that's Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of a Pharisee. Touching the law, I'm blameless. Circumcised the eighth day, advanced in his own religion above anybody of his own age. And of course, when you read that, you're not looking at Paul bragging about anything, but false teachers have come in, and they put him off to the side, and he's a chosen vessel preaching the truth by inspiration. And they want to bring in these doctors like they did in Galatia, you know. Paul said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from the 
from him who called you into the grace of Christ under another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert, pervert the gospel of Christ. But though he, we, or any, even an angel, if it was possible for an angel to come down from heaven, uh, Joseph Smith said it was an angel to come down from heaven, and preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have already received, past tense, let him be anathema. All right, so, I mean, uh, here's a fella, Paul, whose Jewish heritage was undoubtedly and unquestionable, and he's saved. Has God cast off his people? He says, I stand here as proof that he did not. And so Paul begins to put an end to this stupid question. God must have cast off his people. No, he didn't. Look at me. That's what Paul's saying. See, that's Paul's first proof. that his, That's his first illustration that the thought is unthinkable that God cast off his people. He says, here I stand. And then the answer is reiterated. He says, you don't hear me the first time. Let me uh, talk a second time. He says, it's not only proven by my own case, but it is proven by God's foreknowledge. He says, God did not cast off his people, which he foreknew. Now, foreknowledge is more than foresight, and it's less than foreordained. Foreknowledge is something some, uh, somewhere between foresight and foreordained. The word literally means to look upon with favor ahead of time. And so God looked upon these people ahead of time with favor in his foreknowledge. Because when you know somebody, it's uh, intimacy that's involved. And to foreknow is to look upon with favor. I think the dictionary says to look upon with pleasure. And so to foreknow is to look upon a fellow with pleasure before he's even born. Some of you women have experienced that in childbirth, I'm sure. And so did, did God cast off his people, which he foreknew? Did he cast off Jacob? Uh, did he cast off Isaac? Did he cast off Moses? Uh, remember the argument in chapter 9, which dealt with the foreknowledge of God? And so the answer is reiterated by saying, nobody which God foreknew was cast off. But who did he foreknow? Them who would believe on him. What kind of an argument is he still using? Is he still using large circle, small circle? Yeah, that's exactly what he's reusing. The large circle, small circle. Why did he destroy the ten tribes which would have been the large circle? Well, we've studied that in prophecy, haven't we? Read 2 Kings 17 sometime, and you'll read an epitaph of those ten tribes. God destroyed them for their blatant rebellion. And it states in there that God pleaded with them, and he held out his hands all day long to them, wanting to extend his mercy to them, and they would not. They would not. Uh, so what's this uh, small circle now called, this remnant? It's called the foreknown, whom God foreknew, because his foreknowledge was involved with those who became the remnant. They were the ones that listened. Uh, now you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends listened, because in the first chapter, verse 8, as they're hauled off to captivity, even before they got to captivity, it says that they determined within their heart not to defile themselves with the king's dainties. And they even went so far as to work it out with the, with the steward that was put over them by the king to feed them and to nourish them and take care of them because they were wise men. All right, now the answer is proved. 
or it's began to be proved in the second part of verse 2 through 4 by historical precedence. Did you know the history of all of the Old Testament can prove that? That's what he's going to use as proof, so it must be true. That's the historical event of the Old Testament can be used as proof as easily and, and as readily as you can, can from prophecy or some commandment. Uh, as a lawyer, when a lawyer goes to court, he has two ways to prove things. He can prove things by statutory law or by precedent law. You don't see that very often because of our stupidity, but I've seen it in times past, the law of precedent. Things that are established by practice. And they're both equally valid. And sometimes uh, uh, precedence can even be stronger argument than the statu uh, statute. Sometimes statutes attest a part of a statute can be set aside by legal precedent. So precedent is argument, evidence, and proof. Now watch him, watch Paul, use the historical precedent here. Uh, precedent. He says, or know ye not, he says, uh, uh, are you ignorant people? Don't you know, know ye not that the scriptures saith of Elijah, how he pleaded with, the, with God against Israel? Elijah pleaded with God against Israel. All right, he's going to use this. He, verse 3. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have digged down thine altars. And I am left alone. Ever get to feeling that way? <laughs> and they seek my life. That's when he was running from Jezebel, remember? It already had the contest at Mount Carmel to prove who God was, but it scared him when Jezebel put out a warrant, dead or deader. She wanted him dead, and he ran. And if you read that, it's, it's humorous. He ran for, I think, three days into the wilderness, and he ran till he was exhausted. He just passed out. And when he woke up three times, Here's an angel there that's already prepared him a dinner. <laughs> and he's so fearful of Jezebel and her power over all of them people and because he thinks he's the only one left that he eats that meal and gets up and runs again until he passes out. And there's that angel again. And when he finally gets to the cave where he feels some security, he's up there panting for breath, I'm sure, and he hears a still small voice. What are you doing up here? I didn't commission you to be up here. I commissioned you to go preach. Don't you believe in my strength and my ability to protect you? You have no fear of the people when I'm with you. And uh, when you're under my commission. And uh, Elijah's answer was, I'm the only one left. Just me. You ever get to feel that way? And the Lord said, you don't know everything because I know 7,000 men that hadn't bowed a knee to Baal. All right, verse 4. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now he turns to discuss in this text here the fact that appearances are not always the reality. Let me stop on that just for a minute. Appearances are not always a reality. It appears like that big bubble mouth of Biden or Biggin or Boogin or whatever, our president. It looks like him and the Democrats. Uh, uh, it looks like a real picture that they're going to dominate and, and do whatever they want. Uh, we're not seeing a real picture, are we? Because uh, the appearances are not really the reality. That's the way it always is. All right, now from, 
I'll probably get in trouble one of these days for bringing up the president because they're starting to look at people that don't like them. And if they ever contact that cloud, they got me. <laughs> they got me. I don't care. I'm kind of looking deaf in the eye anyway, real close. Uh, now, from Elijah's viewpoint, or from anybody's viewpoint, in the day of Ahab and Jezebel, what were the appearances? One fellow standing uh, alone, right? That was how it appeared. And that's what uh, it looked like. Uh, on Mount Carmel, who's the only fellow standing over there by the altar calling for fire out of heaven? One fellow. He's alone. Uh, he's a gangly, uh, unrangingly, uh, nearly as ungodly looking fella standing alone in all of the austerity of the prophet. And he knows down deep and the only righteous uh, uh, fella left, he's the only one left, he thinks. And so on, uh, and so on Horeb, he said to God, why don't you kill me? And that's exactly the way it was in the day of Paul. What were the masses of the Jews? Unfaithful and ungodly. They're the ones that killed the Savior. That was the large circle, small circle concept again. But now, what was the answer that God gave Elijah? Elijah? You need to get yourself a new computer. The old one's broken. I mean, my computer has 7,000 numbers in it. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that ought to encourage Elijah. He thought it was, he was alone and he finds out he's not. He's 7,001. <laughs> now they may not have been as uh, eventful as Elijah, that's true. But the Lord knew about them. That's the idea. Sometimes we count God's servants by noses. God counts them by number. Elijah needs to learn the lesson that God's truth is not impressed by uh, 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 lightning flashes and loud noises but in the sound of sudden stillness. That's when God comes to you. And he came to him in the cave. A still, small voice. That's what he learned, isn't it? And he learned that 7,000 people have not bowed the knee to Baal. All right, now then the answer is confirmed in verse 5 and 6 of our text this evening. It is confirmed by the fact that the election is according to grace. He said, verse 5, Even so, then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now let me make one comment on that, and I'll try not to take it any further. If it's the election of grace, it's not the election of works. Is it? So who did God elect to save? Those of works or those of grace? Of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. <coughs> and so when God saw you and me, we were having a hell of a time out here in this world doing whatever the hell we wanted to do. We was our own master, we thought. And we just done what we just wandered like a stray cow in the pasture, just wondering wherever we wanted to go, doing what we wanted to do. And we heard the still small voice of God as it whispered to the depths of our being with his grace. We accepted it. And we thank God for the grace, not for the opportunity to show him how great we are. Look what I did. Did you know they write, They got a book out there on, uh, it's been out there for uh, 50 years that I know of, called The Great Preachers of Today. 
Did you know there's men that would give their left arm to be in that book, The Great Preachers of Today? <laughs> well, I see a lot of humor in that. That's a stupid thing I heard ever thought. In fact, I had a group of uh, Christians. I won't say where everything, but they sent me a form to fill out one time wanting to know how successful we were in Benton City. And the question was, Merle, how many people have you saved? I saved nobody. I'm not the Savior. How many people have repented because of your preaching? If you've ever seen a Tasmanian devil, that's what I turned into as I ripped and tore that piece of paper to pieces. I would have liked to roll them back and use some four-letter words to explain to them how stupid they really were. My boasting's in Christ. Your boasting's in Christ. It's not in anything we do or can do. We do only what it is our, our ability, our responsibility to do. Anyway, so Paul learned a past precedent and refers to a present reality. And he says that it pro it's proven by the fact that there is, right now, living in the world, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I mean, that's the figure. Uh, as there was an election, according to grace. In Elijah's day. And so, there is an election according to grace today. God elects through grace. And that's, that's the only way. Man believes and therefore is elected. There's no doubt about that. But God elected, uh, God elects through grace as he did in the days of Elijah. Surely Elijah is number one fellow and he turned out to be uh, in a crowd. But he's the number one fella in all of Israel. Now he wasn't a, uh, a coward standing in front of the Baal prophets, but he's scared of Jezebel. I don't blame him. I would have been too, I think. I'd have run before the Baal prophets. She's the one that introduced Baal worship and brought in the Baal prophets into Israel. And she's the one who, being the king's wife, she fed them at her table. I mean, they lived off of her. Uh, paycheck, probably. Like a lot of them weirdos up there in Washington, D.C. They get their whole families in there. I worked for a contractor one time. Us men revolted and went up and, as a group and told the guy that owned the place, you're not paying enough. You don't even pay as much as these other shops around town, these welding shops. And we're expecting to get paid at least as much as they get paid. You know what his argument was? Well, we don't make that kind of money. You know why they didn't make that kind of money? Because they had grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, cousin, brother, sister, sitting over in the office knitting, making quilts and blankets while the rest of us out in the shop floating all that whole thing. That's why they couldn't pay us, because they're paying them. And he had a brother that was supposed to, he was a salesman of the product we was manufacturing there in the shop. And he couldn't pass a tavern or a bar. And they furnished him a car, a house, all these things. That's why we couldn't give no wages. And so I'd have been like Elijah, I'd have run before the Baal prophets. He at least stood before them on that day of the contest of Mount Carmel, 850 to 1. Would you have been there? Would you have been there? Would you have stood up in a contest like that? Well, not really. He outnumbered them uh, 2 to 850. Uh, that was his faith there. Uh, but why didn't he have it when Jezebel is coming after him? Why didn't he have that? Because he felt alone. And so he didn't feel alone on, on Carmel, but he felt alone when Jezebel got after him. But he wasn't alone. 
He was a part of a, an election according to grace. 7,000 men at that time. God had an election, and his election, he elected 7,000. Now God is having an election in Paul's day, and he's elected all of the Jews who have turned to him by faith. Now who does uh, law elect? Those who meet its requirements. Who does grace elect? Those who believe. <laughs> and what what did uh, Ezekiel 18, uh, Habakkuk 2, 4 state in the Old Testament? The just shall live by what? Not by law, by faith. And so every man that's ever been saved from the days of Adam up until the end of time will be saved by faith. Faith in God. When God stood there and told the devil, I'm, I'm putting enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he, the seed of woman, will come forth one day and destroy thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that's what Calvary was, merely a bruise. Adam and Eve stood there and listened to that. And if they believed God, they were saved by faith. <clears throat> oh, but they didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. They didn't need to. Oh, but they didn't know he was going to whoop the devil on the cross. They didn't need to. Oh, but they didn't know it would be 4,000 years off in the future. They didn't need to. They needed to believe God. Whether they understood it or not, they needed to believe God. And so the just shall live by faith. And Paul uses that very passage in Habakkuk 2 4 in his argument in Romans 1 17. As he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is contained a righteousness from God to be enjoyed on the basis of faith. And then he proves it. He quotes Habakkuk 2 4. He says, for the scripture says the just shall live by faith. These Jews had forgot that. They were legalists. You remember how Paul began the 10th chapter? Verse 1. He announced them as being, he, he, he indicted them as being legalists. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear a record to have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For going about to establish their own righteousness in doing that they have rejected the righteousness of God which is by faith in Christ Jesus and so they, the majority the large circle was rejected but the small circle that had faith was the remnant that was saved and the remnant that God loved and the remnant that he spoke of from the, before he ever made the world alright then finally he explains it by the scriptural proof and he says to the Jews, beginning in verse 7 here, What then? Uh, what's my conclusion? Here it is. That which Israel seeketh for, that he obtaineth not. But the elect election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You ever talk to anybody that was uh, uh, that rejected the grace of God? They become hardened. They got a doctrine. <laughs> go talk to the Baptist. Go talk to the Methodist. The Presbyterian. Go talk to some of them people. They're hardened. Boy, they're like steel. They ain't leaving their religion. I don't care what God says. Leave me alone. I don't care what that Bible of yours says. And they'll make all kinds of excuses because they don't want to obey it. What do they do about baptism? And baptism is what? <laughs> baptism is the beginning. That's when the new birth takes place. That's when salvation begins. You remember it's not a matter of believing. It's a little more than that. It's obedience. Because look at Saul of Tarsus. He's on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and he reiterates it when he's on trial before the Roman magistrates and, 
in Acts 22. But let's just take his account, the account of his conversion in Romans 9. He's on his road to Damascus. The Lord saw a man with an honest and a clear conscience. Because Paul said later, when I was persecuting Christians, I'd done it with a clear conscience. I thought they were blasphemers. <coughs> but God reached out and struck him off his mount and blinded him. And what was Paul's response? Who art thou, Lord? Now, <coughs> he saw that whoever done this to him was a master, a lord. And he's asking, well, what, who are you? Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Because you see, when he was persecuting the church, what is the church? It's the body of Christ. And so he was persecuting. He said, uh, uh, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. What was Paul's response? He believed it immediately, didn't he? He said, what must I do? Does that sound like belief? Yeah. He believed that instant. It was proved to him he believed it. And the Lord said, go into Damascus and there it will be told you what you must do. Must do, not may do. Must. Did he believe? Yeah. He goes into Damascus and the record says he was there for three days and nights. And while he was there, what was he doing? He was in his belief because he'd done what the Lord said. He went to Damascus, waited for someone to come tell him what he must do. He's waiting. And what's he doing while he's waiting? He's praying and he's fasting. And then God gets Ananias to come to him. I don't know why God waited three days and nights to send Ananias. Maybe it was for our sakes that we might learn from it. But here's what we can learn. Day one. Day two. Day three. Three days. Three nights. When did Paul believe? On the road to Damascus in day one. What's he been doing during all three of these days and nights? Uh, praying and fasting. Now look what happened over here after three days and three nights of praying and fasting and believing. God sends Ananias to tell him what he must do. What did Ananias say? Why tearest thou Saul? Acts 22, verse 16. Why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. And if Paul had been of the Baptist mind, he'd have said, what do you mean sins? Well, I believe three days ago. And you're telling me that I got sin and I got to be baptized? Yeah. I've been praying for three days and night and fasting. And you're telling me that don't mean that I'm saved? That's exactly right. Don't tarry about us all. You're still answerable to your sins. Just because you believe and just because you've been praying and fasting for three days and three nights carries no weight. You've got to be obedient to what you believe. And so he was baptized for the remission of sins. Now, <laughs> If you can remember why I brought that up, well, praise be to you. <laughs> but anyway, that is the fallacy of a lot of people. Their stubbornness will not allow them to accept anything that they don't understand. I mean, my dad and my mom were Baptists and I'm going to die a Baptist. All right, go right ahead. That's your choice. God's still pleased with you. He's still waiting for you. And that was a Jew. He wasn't about to leave his Jewish religion regardless of what proof was set before him. Remember, well, won't go into that. And so, uh, 
So Paul uh, declares to him that he obtained not, but the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What's the big circle here? Verse 7. It's Israel. That's who the big circle is. What's the small circle? The election. Uh, what's the rest of the circle? Well, the rest. <laughs> what happened to the election? They obtained grace. What happened to the rest? They were hardened. That's what that verse says. Verse 8. According as it is written, and he's quoting from Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4, and I'm sure your cross-reference in your Bible will lead you to those two passages. If it don't, there they are. Because that's what he's referring to is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. That means a spirit of drunkenness, sleepy darkness. He says, eyes that should not see, and ears that they should not hear. Now, Isaiah doesn't add uh, those next few words. Paul does. Unto this very day. Oh, that's so that was that way all the way through their history. They had, they had it in Moses' day, Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. They had it in Isaiah's day, Isaiah 29, 10. And they've still got it. They've had a spirit of stupor, unseeing eyes and unbelieving ears for over 1,500 years at the time Paul writes this book. They're still with unseeing eyes and unhearing ears. What did Jesus tell them about that? I'm sorry I didn't look the passage up, but you can. He said, having eyes to see, they refuse to see. Now let me ask you a question. Could they see it? Absolutely. They made a decision, didn't they? They didn't want to see it. The Baptists don't want to see anything about baptism. Don't even bring it up. I don't even want to hear that. I've heard it enough. They put turned away from the truth on the fables. And so having eyes to see, they see not, Jesus said. And having ears to hear, they hear not, lest I should heal them. In other words, they could hear and they could see, but they made a choice. Has the world made a choice? Oh yeah. I've been on a lot of construction jobs where somebody popped off and said for the group, Oh, uh, we don't discuss religion and politics here. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to reason. God told Israel in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. They don't want to reason. Are they worthy of damnation? They are because they've thrown it in God's face. They're not going to listen to God. They don't want anything from him unless he's got bubble gum and candy and pop. And, you know, the good things. That's what they want. Good health. Now, you let them get unhealthy in there, pray to God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Save me. And, you know, it's ridiculous. They don't want nothing to do with God. They ain't even trying to walk in his ways. But when trouble comes, they want his help. <laughs> All right, then he quotes David in verse 9. And David saith, Let them their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Verse 10, Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their backs always. Well, that's one of those... Uh, uh, imperatory psalms uh, that give some people a lot of trouble. And we'll begin there and discuss that next week because our time's up. But Paul is making an argument here to clarify that God hadn't rejected his people. They rejected him. 
They rejected him. And if you was to go before the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Catholic and well, I use them names because they are they stand in blatant rebellion to God's word in a lot of areas. If you was to go to them and ask them, why do you stand in blatant rebellion? We don't rebel. Why we're doing what God wants? And of course, in their mind, they've already convinced themselves that their salvation is a result of their works. Why well, send money to this preacher and this church and this orphan home and I do this and do that? That is what they look to for salvation, their works. They don't look to the cross. They don't see it as a free gift. And so when they stand before God, they will uh, ordinarily, uh, they, they won't say nothing, I know that, but they would ordinarily want to say, now look, old man, I may not get all of heaven, but you owe me a portion of it because of all the good works I've done. And see, that's why it's not of works and why it's of grace. It's a free gift. So we begin there in verse uh, 9 next week. What is today? The 25th? Yep. Well, that that was the 25th this morning. Yep. <laughs> of December. You were wearing a helmet, weren't you? We're in the 11th chapter, and that's the, the third chapter of his argument, vindicating God and trying to explain to the Jews why they were rejected. And of course, he uses history to prove it. That's what Stephen did in Acts 7.21. Or 7, uh, Acts 7.51. He said, ye do always resist the Spirit of God. He talked to the Jewish hierarchy. You always resist the Spirit of God. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets is not your father's killed? <coughs> and he sent his own son and you killed him. And of course, then they picked up rocks and finished off Stephen. Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn according to the custom and tradition all of that. Hey, <laughs> 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 <laughs>